0: Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media.
1: I'm Glenn McDorman, And I'm Brent Helt. In this episode, we'll be discussing the short story, The Dream of Earl Albeck by Michael Moorcock. The publication date for a lot of Moorcock stuff is kind of complicated, but let's just peg this one of 1964.
0: Yeah, we'll uh, we'll talk about that in the in the episode at some some point. I think near the end, we'll talk about what is the publication date of this. But before we have that conversation, we should really let listeners know why are we reading this story on our Neil Gaiman podcast? And actually, there are two reasons. The first is that Michael Moorcock's Elric stories are one of the bedrocks of the idea of order versus chaos or, or law versus chaos, as it actually appears in in Morcock, And this you know has made its way into D&D as the alignment system, but it is also in DC Comics. And of course, we encountered this in, I don't know, maybe not a big way, but we encountered this at any rate in Season of Mist. And so we are reading a story that features some of this. The other reason, though, is really that Gaiman is a fan. He's a big fan of Michael Moorcock. He has a story called One Life Furnished in Early Moorcock that uh, I imagine we will cover someday. And in fact, that story appears as a foreword to the volume that we are reading this story from. That's a a volume published by Saga Press. Uh, It's the first volume in a series that collects all of uh, Moorcock's Elric work and arranges it according to its internal chronology, which is to say not according to its order of, of publication, which does then bring me to the other note that I want to make before we get into it. This circles back to the, hey, when was this published question, which is just to say that Figuring out what really is in the canon of Michael Moorcock Elric stories and the order to read them in and even where to find them, puzzling all of that out can be extremely difficult. That is in large part because, well, I mean, one obvious reason is right, that there's just a lot of it. But what I'm really trying to get at here is that Moorcock published most of this material in magazines. He published it as short stories, sometimes serialized novellas, but still short fiction rather than novels. But then, when the publishing market really shifted away from magazines and towards novels in the 70s, Moorcock repackaged these stories as novels. And what he did was group a bunch of these stories together, or stitch is actually often the the word that people will use, stitch them together, rewrite some of it in order then to make these separate stories link together and become chapters in a novel. And it is my understanding that since then, Moorcock has been opposed to treating these as short stories, even though he originally wrote almost all of them as such, and he prefers them in their novel forms. Of course, we are not doing that today. We are, in fact, taking one of these chapters and treating it as a standalone short story. On the other hand, it was published as a standalone short story originally. So, uh, you know, I think that's fair game to do that. But I also will say that in my life, I have found this move by Moorcock. He's not the only person to have done this, of course, but I have found this move, the kind of repackaging, the stitching novels, the stitched together novels. To me, that has been something of a barrier to entry here. And I certainly did not read Moorcock in high school. I don't remember you reading Moorcock in high school either, Brenton. I I actually have no idea what Moorcock you have read.
1: There was some Moorcock that I picked up at one of the used bookstores that we used to visit in Naperville by the Riverwalk, the one that was underground, and I read that one, but I don't honestly remember what that volume was. I remember very little about that, and I think I also then later checked out some other Moorcock from the library. The Moorcock stuck with me more as a remembrance that I did read Moorcock than remembering any plot details whatsoever, really. And I do want to say, like, I... I think it does become complicated when you do things like Morcock does, as you said, where he stitches together a collection of short stories on the one hand. On the other hand, I do think uh, some of the more recent volumes, like the one we're reading from, in pulling them together, it does make it kind of better for someone who wants to read a lot of Morcock or particularly a lot of Elric stories to present it in the the fashion that it is instead of – when you and I were looking at stuff, I think part of the challenge of me even trying to figure out where to jump into it and the reason why I just went with something that was in the used bookstore was, what's the first book, question mark? (laughs) Like, where where do I start? You know, and there's not – there wasn't a a market that was readily accessible to us as teenagers of uh, the magazine articles, right? Collectors had them, but like there wasn't – you wouldn't go to a store and be like, oh, here's some old, you know – at reasonable priced, you know, costs for, um, these magazines that were such limited print run. Um, and so you really had to hunt out and know what you were looking for or rely on the publication of these various iterations of kind of stitched together collections. Um, and I think that there's more success the later he's gone, maybe pulling this together. There might be reasons why copyright was easier for him to manage that he has a little bit more authority now later in life to be able to kind of pull things more into collections so it's not that things are missing but um i mean it still very much is kind of bits of things and in that way i think that encountering his books for anyone who is reading from volumes such as we're reading from today it is good still to think of them more as an anthology of things with kind of a main central cast of characters rather than thinking of it as you are reading a cohesive novel um the way you would with someone who, you know, sat down and wrote all in one push, here are all the signposts you're trying to hit, despite some of the changes that Moorcock has made. This is actually a pretty common
0: occurrence in Sword and Sorcery which is well one I should say hey that's that's what these Elric stories are they're Sword and Sorcery stories uh, written over a long period of time but you know getting getting their start in the the 60s and this is actually a pretty early one that we're going to be uh, talking about here today but this is common for Sword and Sorcery right that they exist primarily as short stories in fact i think many People would say that that's part of what makes something sword or sorcery not or not is that it is short fiction, uh, not certainly not long, massive novels a la uh, Wheel of Time or Game of Thrones or I don't know uh, Brandon Sanderson and any of the other more recent things that I'm not not hip to. And so we get this move from Fritz Leiber as well, and then of course also just debating what is the reading order for Robert E. Howard's Conan stories is you know just an endlessly uh, debated topic everywhere on. the the internet. It's something Brandon and I talk about over on Elder Sign whenever we do. uh, Well, maybe not whenever, but when we have done some of the Robert E. Howard Conan stories at any rate. And uh, we have, of course, also done a Michael Moorcock uh, Elric story over there as well. Actually, not with Brandon. That was something I did with a a guest host, but I had a lot of fun doing that uh, because I, I don't actually remember at all you getting that volume at Bookseller, Brent, even though Presumably I was there with you. Not to say that we never went there without each other, but you know, that was kind of our, our our life was going to bookseller. And I just don't remember you you having that. But maybe that's actually where I had read a little bit of Moorcock in high school and maybe got confused and didn't go back to it until I was actually in my my thirties. And so I still have not read everything by, well, certainly not everything by Michael Moorcock, but also not even all of the Elric stories. This one was actually new to me for this, uh, this show. And so I'm really, really excited to, to get into it. So let's, uh, let's do that. And I should clarify because I have been calling this an Elric story, but I think we should be clear up front that Elric is uh, not appearing in this film. And uh, it is set in his world, but Elric is not here. And in fact, it's set significantly before Elric. Our protagonist is a character named Earl Aubeck. And hey, you know, the the story is called The Dream of Earl Aubeck. Uh, Earl Aubeck of Malador. And yeah, this story takes place really a few centuries before Elric is born. And so the geopolitical situation is different from what we encounter in most of these stories. But I'll summarize the differences of this world by just by saying that Aubec is an aristocratic warrior, uh, really the type that we get in medieval romances, also the type that we get in 20th century fantasy stories. And Aubec is on a mission to claim Castle Canaloon for his queen, whose name is uh, Eluarday. And the deal is that Castle Canaloon is located at world's edge. That's a, a proper noun. And world's edge is literally that. It's exactly what it says on the box. It is the literal edge of the world. Beyond world's edge is chaos, which is to say the raw material of creation as yet unformed. And we will talk more about that chaos in a bit. But I actually just want to pause here, Brent, even before we get very far into this, just to take your pulse on this Set up because this really is very, at least for me, it feels very medieval romance with, you know, Auback as the queen's champion on really something akin to a Grail quest, and I can see the appeal of this to Gaiman. Right, reading this story, I was I thought I just imagined a
1: younger, you know, a young Neil Gaiman really enjoying this. There's a lot that's appealing here. Um, There, in fact, specifically, there's a point where there calls attention to. Kind of the advancement of the romantic chivalric concepts of, you know, the loyalty that Aubeck uh, has to his queen, even if he perhaps doesn't really love her. Just kind of the sense of duty and his responsibility as her champion kind of thing. And then just the wonderful descriptions of this castle that's sitting on kind of the edge of everything and this you know tumultuous chaos that we'll talk a little bit more about that's kind of right out the window and this the setting nicely lets you not worry about world building where you're having to lay out the map for where everything is it clearly is like and the author has not determined what is over there yet uh, as a central part of the premise in part um which we'll get to um but also i think it um nicely gives an excuse to I mean, in some ways it kind of leans into, but in some way it lets you sidestep some of kind of the ickier colonialist kind of aspects to a lot of kind of this kind of fiction. Yes. And who exactly
0: lives where, you know, on, on whatever new land you might form out of this, that's going to be a part of the story that's going to come back in the end. So let's uh, let's start our journey there. Let's go get to Castle Cantaloon. Now Castle Canaloon is really something akin to the Grail Castle in Parsifal or you know other bits of Arthuriana but Parsifal the 13th century uh, German poem is really what I think of here it's what it feels like to me uh, and what I mean really is just that it feels like this Grail Castle in the sense that it is a castle Inexplicably, in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I mean, this exists in Monty Python and the Holy Grail as as well. <laughs> so you know, if that's if that's your touchstone rather than 13th century medieval romances, nonetheless, it's kind of there in all of Arthuriana. But in this case, the castle inexplicably in the middle of nowhere is also evidently ancient even though people in the world had only heard of its existence very recently, and the narrator tells us that this is something about which philosophers have been speculating. Now, the castle is seemingly uninhabited, or at least seemingly uninhabited by people. The entrance is just a black maw, and Aubeck's footsteps don't echo. And then Aubeck is attacked by gibbering fiendish creatures. He chases them off, and now he finds himself in a kind of labyrinth, which is full of malicious laughter. And Aubeck is just lost here. I mean, that's kind of one of the features of a labyrinth, I guess. But then he encounters a door, and this door springs open on its own to reveal a huge person-like thing. This thing is mostly made of metal, and uh, it's grinning at him. And what this is is a golem. And we don't get an explicit explanation of this in the text, but Aubeck he just understands that this is a creature that has been made through sorcery. Now he and the golem fight. Uh Aubek wins that fight, but he wins it by being clever. It was actually a really good ruse here. I liked this bit. But then he is faced with a locked door, which he hacks to pieces with his sword. We're gonna pick up there in a in a moment. But at this point I just want to pause Brent because I have to say that I enjoyed the heck out of this. Well, I guess I would just have to describe this as a dungeon crawl, right? And this is a place where you can see, I think pretty clearly, the influence that Moorcock had on D&D. Yeah,
1: I think this clearly sets up kind of the conceptualization of what Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax and so many others kind of had when they were putting together kind of baseline early Dungeons & Dragons, which kind of carried with a lot of the game to this day of you've got... You know, kind of slightly forging to the unknown, but the unknown has been named um, and defined in some ways. But still, you're outside your comfort zone. You're going somewhere where maybe no one has gone before. um, And you're having to face kind of constructs that are created by magic um, and try to find ways to outwit them. Because even though you're so tough that you can, you know, hack down all the the doors that you need to with your sword, uh, nonetheless – you are terrified when you come across some of the things you come across. And so, how do you best those things? I really enjoyed the story and particularly the kind of conceptualization of the visuals which we were getting from Moorcock. I really was, was enjoying those. And I, we weren't getting like, you know, the descriptive. Language of every swing of the sword, you know, and dis- discussion of his musculature, which we'd get from some other authors. Instead, a lot of it is just kind of visually set up, um, which reminded me a lot of D&D. It also reminded me specifically of the D&D cartoon where there was just like, you know, here is just a castle in the middle of a wasteland. And like that is very much, you know, the beginning plot and in fact, the end of the plot of a D&D cartoon at that point. <laughs> um so I, I, it really did work for me, um, and particularly, as you said, him having to kind of, when dealing with the immovable force that is there to destroy him in the form of the golem, him having to find a way to outsmart it is just like, how do we show that, you know, Albeck is not just like a brute, but actually like able to do some amount of kind of mental plotting, at least in a tactical sense. Um There's a limit to that, which we'll get to, but, um, uh, I think that that kind of plays out nicely and it makes, you know, generally when you're writing to a science fiction fantasy crowd or any crowd, you're going to want to appeal to people who are, uh, uh, think of themselves as thoughtful, right? You're, you're kind of playing to the crowd that way too. So you want to make this a hero who like the reader can be like, wow, that's a really amazing person. But also I, you know, imagine myself to have similar characteristics of like, oh, I also would probably have come to that conclusion of how to, to best the golem. Yeah, there was a real sense
0: while I was reading this that I, I wanted to get out some graph paper and start <laughs> mapping the the interior of this castle as we go through especially when we get in the labyrinth and i also really just felt like i could hear you know the clatter of dice <laughs> like it was, it was more cock actually just rolling to see what monster was going to come out next uh you know just rolling to you know double check or to cross check the uh the random encounter table is kind of what it felt like to me and of course that's not at all what's happening here but it really is that yeah uh the creators of Dungeons and Dragons have captured the feel of this really well uh you know Dungeons and Dragons is famous for well uh, not not the original version of it but one of the i don't know the the third year of it or so having this uh, appendix n which was a list of uh suggested reading right it's a list of what were the influences that went into this into this game and of course, many of these are, are are quite famous, and I have read a lot of them. But this story, I think, was the first of any of these that I've read where I've been like, yes, this 100% feels just like it is actually an early D&D type adventure. Like This is just a real like one-to-one adaptation of that. And in fact, if someone had showed this to me without any publication data or author data, I would have just said this is somebody's... Fanfiction about their D and D campaign, and so uh, I was really glad to have read this story just for that experience alone. Well, all right, let's uh, let's go find out what is behind this door that Aubeck has uh, has just hacked up with his sword, and it is a lady. In fact, it is the Dark Lady, whose name is Michela, and I should say here that. Michelle is a recurring character in Elric's stories. We don't need to know any of that for this story to work, but she is someone whom, you know, if you are a reader of Elric's stories, you've probably encountered before. And the deal is that Michella is an agent of law in the struggle against chaos And she wants to help champions extend the territory of law, and her way of finding out if people who come to this castle are up to the task—and it is a difficult uh, task—her way of finding out if they are up to it is to make them go through this dungeon crawl. And in fact, the dungeon crawl is really a dungeon crawl of the visitor's own making, by which I mean everything that Aubek faced came— not actually from a random encounter table, but in fact from his own subconscious fears. Uh so I guess really what we're saying here is that it's the cave on Dagobah, basically. <laughs> and uh of course most people they don't make it. Aubek is uh, you know, he's exceptional, as you were uh you were talking about earlier, Brent. And so of course, right, Aubek has made it, and Michela uh, wants to get him to go out to the area of chaos and then bend that chaos to his will. This will create new land, really just a, you know, a new part of the the earth uh, out of this raw material and therefore shrink the domain of chaos and expand the domain of law. But Aubeck keeps insisting that he is only here to claim this castle for his queen. And, uh, you know, Michelle keeps trying to persuade him to go do this, and he keeps resisting probably what we should call, I don't know, sexy temptations, maybe is the phrase that I I will use here. There's maybe a little more of that than I would have cared for, but you know, it was the 60s. But in the end, she does get him, though. It's not with the sexy temptations. And really what she does is tell him that the new land he creates will obviously now be also part of his queen's domain. So he'll be able to go home an even bigger hero, right? It's not just this castle that he'll get, but all of this new territory. And I should add here that it's you know it's not just land, but in fact, new people are going to be created through Aubek's will when he goes out there. And these are people who although they are going to be brand new, you know, seconds old, but nonetheless, they are going to remember a long past. They're going to have a culture, a long existing culture, and think of themselves as having inhabited this land for a long time. And so Michelle is not being completely forthright with Abek here because these people will have free will, and they are not necessarily going to want to be a part of you know, Abek's queen's domain, right? Obek. Doesn't really think about that. Michela's not upfront about that, and so Abek goes for it, and he walks into the mist and creates new realms and new civilizations. And then the story ends with Michelle preparing the castle for its transition to the new edge of the world beyond what Aubek is about to create. I think this is actually a really great touch here, the idea that this castle is always at world's edge, wherever world's edge is, uh, but also that there's like preparation she needs to make. I thought that was pretty great. But what we have really been here for, of course, is to think about this depiction of law and chaos, and specifically how that lines up with order- and chaos, how that functions in DC comics. So Brent, that's really the question for you as the, you know, the comic book expert, the comic book historian here, does this feel, you know, just, yeah, just how does this line up with order and chaos in, in DC comics?
1: I think that they're similar in their context in, in part because they don't fall into it. It's an important distinction between law and chaos and good and evil um, law and chaos are not necessarily a one for one replacement of good and evil, which is the case in this universe. It's also the case in the, um, DC universe in which there's a lot of things that the lords of law, um, or the lords of order do that are, uh, not really what you would consider to be like morally right. Um, in good necessarily. Um, they're kind of done in justification of the, you know, the balance between law and chaos. There's a lot about balance in here too. And there's, you know, it's oftentimes discussion in the DC continuity about the context of there being a balance. And so there needs to be a champion for things, um, for either order or a counterpart for chaos in which, you know, chaos in both universes kind of generally does lean towards the evil, at least in part, um, kind of the corrupting nature of it. But, uh, the order slash law, not necessarily what you'd consider to be kind of a good thing. So there I've kind of found some commonality. Also, similarly uh, things are not well-defined. We don't get here a laid out treatise on this things. Um, there's an opportunity, you know, to do so when he discovers the library essentially of the, of the castle um, in which he uh, encounters books he cannot read, but it does not like in any way indicate to him like, you know, a hierarchy or a plan or a description of the fundamentals. It's just a kind of given that there is law and there's chaos. And this is what you do is kind of try to have law impose order on, you know, the swirling, you know, the swirling kind of maelstrom of, of chaos. So it's, um, yeah, kind of the ambiguousness uh, kind of does echo in both kind of mythologies we've got. I think that one of the places where I really
0: thought there was actually quite a bit of influence on DC Comics from this story specifically is that this actually to me feels like how the dreaming works like the image mm-hmm. that I created in my head reading the description that you know you know of what's going to happen when Aubek goes out there to me the image that I conjured up was an image of dream making the corinthian or dream uh, at the the end of doll's house right where we you know are on this this bleak landscape that's kind of unformed as yet uh, really to me felt like gaiman read this story and it got in there in his subconscious about just sort of what it would look like for this metaphysical creation of of new worlds right what would that look like to me this yeah just very much feels like how dream creates new beings
1: and also creates new areas of the of the dreaming i think that's quite fair that um particularly the idea that when dream creates things they spring into existence with their own memories and thoughts um, and as kind of distinct entities of their own, even though they're something that he just created now, they're not things don't come into existence just as like, you know, a New Year's baby does. Right. It's uh it's things that are coming in with their own kind of linkage to existing things. Um, and so in that way, it, it is it does kind of overlay nicely with a lot of the ways that the dreaming is concocted in which. Yeah that here, the whole worlds are being creative. I mean, from an authorial standpoint, the idea that you would occasionally, you know, get to the end of the world. And you know, if, if a champion has enough, whatever to, (laughs) to have the law that resonates around them, be able to push forward and make manifest, you know, whole new lands from the chaos that then springs forth, not just the lands, but also the people, um, like there's just there's a lot of kind of fun there because it's an excuse to be like and here is the relationship between all these things that didn't exist before, which is you know a fun way also in terms of anyone who's dungeon mastering out there. Feel free just to do this for your game instead of trying to do world building. Just like put a castle that's always at the edge of the map, and when the PCs get there, the castle moves. Go, f- yeah. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> well, that also reminded
0: me of Dream's Castle as we encountered it in Season of Mists as well, right, where it's, you know, changes its shape, does change its location as well and, you know, I just was imagining because of the way that Michelle was talking about having to like prepare the castle for this move. You know, I was just imagining what this is like for the, well, the servants who work in Dream's castle, right? <laughs> when he changes up the layout of the castle, moves it around, like Lucian probably has a ton of work to do to maintain that library make sure that, you know, nothing goes missing as the library itself is actually changing its shape, changing its form, changing its decor and, you know, to suit Dream's mood or needs and so on. So yeah, again, I think that was another place where I was like, yeah, like this, I feel where this story is showing up in, in Sandman, uh, in some
1: in some subtle ways, uh, but but excellent ways. And 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 we see actually manifest in preludes and nocturnes the kind of the opposite of the story in some ways, right? Because of dreams imprisonment, you know the dreaming has somewhat collapsed in on itself, and there are parts of it that are have left, and there are also parts of it that just no longer exist because dream was not there. Um, and so you know Lucian has to do with census, but uh, in addition, it's just. Chaos has overtaken part of the dreaming, um, and so we don't have the order that is imposed from dream. So, in the, in that way, I think you're right. There is a lot of kind of uh, a parallel, a structure. Um, not really any sexy time with dream, though. Um, but yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> well, let's move to closing out this episode, Brent, and talk about
0: our favorite passages. But before we get to that, talk about the title of this story. I alluded to this at the beginning of the episode, but this story was originally published in the magazine Fantastic Stories of Imagination. That was in 1964. It had a different title there. It was published as Master of Chaos. And as far as I can tell, though, I very clearly may be completely wrong here, but as far as I can tell, Moorcock changed the title to The Dream of Earl Aubeck when he wanted to include it in the novel The Weird of the White Wolf, which is the form in which we have read it today. It serves as the prologue to that novel. But I think, Brent, that I like Master of Chaos better as a title. What do you think?
1: Yeah, no, Master of Chaos is uh, exciting and um, also a good description of the function that the Earl, that that Aubeck does perform here cuz he does master chaos in in his way um or at least kind of spring forth this and and my understanding is um that Moorcock um had at one point planned and maybe still does he's still with us still writing um to do a lot more earl all book stories um so to give us a lot more of this character i think that there probably are other stories um associated with this character in some ways but i i get the impression that uh, there was a hope to even do far more than that, um, and that it's not just a prologue for an Elric collection, but rather some discussions about the Aalbuck's own kind of journey. Well, let's talk about favorite passages. Brent, what was yours? You know, there was a lot of the descriptions of the swirling Chaos that I loved a lot, and just even the setup for the story I loved. But the section I went with, um, and I kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, was Um, It's on page 571 of the volumes we're reading from. It's when he encounters these, uh, the kind of the library of the castle, I'll call it. It was a beautiful thing of red vellum, but the black letters upon it meant nothing to him. And he was astounded for though dialects varied from place to place. There was only one language in all the lands of the earth. Another scroll bore different symbols still. And a third, he enrolled, carried a series of highly stylized pictures, which were re- repeated here and there so that he guessed they formed some kind of alphabet. Disgusted, he flung the scroll down, picked up his sword, drew an immense breath and shouted, who dwells here? Dot, dot, dot. Um, so what I love about this is A, I really want these scrolls in this library. Um, I want some kind of a, someone to, to make, uh, Maybe I'll check Etsy, uh, <laughs> some kind of a, uh, prop version of these to sit in my own library. But I also like the fact that here we, we've decided to not, to, to show the limits of Earl Albeck. He is not a patient man. I think if you and I came on scrolls, even if we were like, we don't recognize this language, we would then maybe at least briefly try to figure out if we could see some common, at least commonality between the scrolls, maybe some kind of a puzzle to try to start Piecing things out a little bit, or like see if there's a gist. Particularly the pictogram, like picture. What are they pictures of? Is this like hieroglyphics? Is this are these people? Are these animals? Like there's so many questions I have, and I love how Moorcock just the language he uses here to describe the scrolls makes them very attractive objects that feel very lifelike to me. On the one hand, on the other hand. Um, here, we don't have that the hero is just, you know, an all powerful, all knowing person who's just like, oh, and he clearly blah, blah. There's like, nope. He is a guy who is super frustrated because of what he's faced to this point. He has encountered the limits of his own ability because he is a champion on the physical side and not so much maybe on the mental side. Um, and uh, so um, he will proceed to yelling and he gets disgusted at the fact that he finds these. I think you and I would not be disgusted upon finding three scrolls in a language that we've never <laughs> seen when there are no other languages that we've ever encountered before in our lives. This would just be I'm, – I'm thinking of the film Arrival and just how great that film is, but also just like – The way I think that we would and maybe some of the listeners would encounter this would be very different from Earl Albeck. Um, But then again, I can't chop down a a door with a sword quite as effectively as he can, so –
0: no, Earl Albeck is a uh, a man of action. I think is the phrase that we use. Whereas, right, you and I, and uh, almost certainly the vast majority of uh, anyone listening to a podcast about books, would go, "Ooh, books!" and that's the end of the adventure. Like that's that's just it. Yeah, we would uh, all be the Daniel character from Stargate, right? I think yeah. is uh, that that was what I was thinking. Of. Yeah,
1: Michelle would have to come find us and be like, um, "Yeah, I'm over here for sexy time. Um, are you still reading?" <laughs> Well, I did not choose
0: a different description of books the way that I chose a different description of the same thing that you did last time uh, in our uh, G.K. Chesterton coverage. But nonetheless, uh, the passage that I chose, Brent, is very close to where you are here. You were on page 571 of this volume. I was on page 569. But what I chose was the paragraph in which Moorcock really begins the dungeon crawl section. He was soon lost. His footsteps made no echo which was unexpected. Then the blackness began to give way to a series of angular outlines, like the walls of a twisting corridor. Walls which did not reach the uncensed roof, but ended several yards above his head. It was a labyrinth, a maze. He paused and looked back and saw with horror that the maze wound off in many directions, though he was sure he had followed a straight path from the outside. And I just think this is a creepy description that really gets at the core of what this castle is like, but I think also gets at abeck's state of mind. That's something I really appreciate or you know, just generally really appreciated about this story is that it is very much about the setting of this castle. You know, we've got this passage I've just read that's very evocative. You've got the scrolls that really jumped out to you just as you know, the materiality of this place really just sings off the page, I think. but Moorcock, also gives us quite a bit about what's going on with Aubek, his interiority. I think that's even there in the passage that you read, right? We learn a lot about who he is as a character. It's something I thought was really phenomenal about this story.
1: Yeah, it's it's really beautiful language in terms of letting us into his head, um, kind of appreciate things from a third-person perspective, but also give a real strong sense as to where he's at, but also just you know there's so many questions because as you said, this is kind of the beginning of the dungeon crawl where you know he's lost and there's a labyrinth and you know just it's yeah it's it's great um yeah it, it, this is a short story uh but um and so there's not a lot that you necessarily get from it um uh, but I do think uh it is worth uh a quick read for uh, any of our listeners who is interested because uh, uh I think there's just a lot to enjoy about this language.
0: Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. I, I I think I did mention earlier that this story serves as a, a prologue, right? That Moorcock had published it separately just as a, hey, here's a short story. But when he did his stitch up, he used this as a prologue to a, a proper Elric story, a stitched up novel. And I will say, I think this functions great as a prologue, right? This is something I spend 30 minutes reading, really enjoying and saying, yeah, I want, I want more of this. You know, where, where is this, where's this going? I would like to see more of, of this world. It really serves that, that purpose. And, uh, I'm glad to have, have, have read it here. But I think on that note, we'll close things out. That
1: is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman, And I'm Brent Heltz. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. If you would
0: like some more conversation about Michael Moorcock or Sword and Sorcery or just more weird fiction in general, I hope you will check out our other show, Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast. Next time here, we will be back with an episode on not one, but two Neil Gaiman forays into Gotham City. This will be Pavan, which is a a Poison Ivy story. And then also Watching from the Shadows, which is a poem about Gaiman's relationship with Batman. And until then, pleasant dreams.